Welcome to our Indie Street Chat. The members of Bloodhound Picks and an occasional guest give their no BS experiences with current aspects of the industry. Hi, thank you for listening to this episode of Industry, where I'm going to change it up a little bit away from the horror genre itself and go off and talk about theater, because a lot of times we like to assume theater is theater, film is film, but there is a lot of crossover, especially what is happening currently with the industry. So I had the pleasure of talking with Dan Johnson, an actor I've known for some time and one of the most passionate and talented actors I've that I've ever seen. So the conversation with Dan takes a trip down memory lane where we talk about a little bit of how we worked together and what we created and kind of how it was important during that time. We also go in and start talking about race in the theater world and what he and some of the people he's working with intend to do to kind of help bring more inclusion into theater. So listen up and hope you enjoy. So then, I mean, kind of still touching on this subject and, you know, of course, the what's become my elephant in the room type of topic that I have to bring up now all the time is, you know, we had the, we have what's going on with, you know, recent and Black Lives Matter. And then on top of that, now we have, well, yeah, I guess on top, um, we have a pandemic that we're dealing with, and then we have, yes. um, you know, all of these factors, which have kind of really impacted the, you know, the industry. Where so in a lot of, you know, I'll talk to other people, you know, when it's more film related, they'll kind of they'll say, well, there's a lot of it. There's no going back to. It's not going back to the days of where all of these movies are going to be in theaters. It's more so. Like, you know, the big Marvel, DC, whatever, they'll be in theaters and then everything else will kind of move to online or, mm-hmm. you know, do things like The Invisible Man where it's playing in some small pockets, but then you can, you know, get a ticket right when it comes out type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think is, I guess, is there a point like that with theater moving for, for the future? with everything that's happened are we kind of past the or past that point of no return to what it was you know, prior and is there a positive to that and huh. well um i mean the caveat to all of this is film as it was theater as it was without a vaccine it's hard for most people to be able to afford right now um going back to the way things were you know, like you've got, um, to name a film example, uh, Jurassic World's Dominion that's shooting right now. Yeah. But that movie, I'm sure, is at least $180 million. Yes. You know, and probably going upwards of that now with all the safety precautions that they take and everything like that. You know, so that's not necessarily a sustainable way forward. Uh, again, with theater... There's a production that Equity approved that's going up in Massachusetts of Godspell, because, you know, that speaks to these times, yeah. <laughs> um, in which all of the actors are socially distanced and behind, you know, plexiglass partitions and wearing masks. And, you know, that's a thing if you could afford to pay $100 a ticket. 
But I think a positive to it is the industry having the time, well, I mean, both theater and film, one, to address issues that have been longstanding. Yes. You know, like issues of equity, like issues of inclusion. But two, rethink what the art form can be. Um, one thing that I, I hope comes out of, uh, you know, COVID and something that I do think is starting to come out from a theater standpoint, uh, but I certainly hope comes out from a film standpoint, and I think it's starting to, is there's space for smaller work again. Yeah. You know, there's not only a space for it, there's, there's a need for it. I think, once again, to come back to one of my big words, there's more democratization. Yeah. There's more space, you know, for people who don't necessarily have a $200 million budget, but who have a killer idea, uh, an iPhone, and some sound equipment, yeah. and, you know, a couple of good friends in their quarantine circle. Well, now, there's a larger possibility for that work to see a wider audience, you know, or to create that work or to share it. Now, from my end, um, from, from a theatrical standpoint, again, because I operate from the mindset of I'm not doing it necessarily for the money, is Zoom theater like watching Hamilton live on stage? No, it's not. But what Zoom theater does, again, uh, is have the potential to reach a wider audience. Yeah. So what does theater in the Zoom era look like? Well, there, there are ways to do it. You know, there are ways to do, I, I actually just went to one recently, socially distanced theater, in which you don't necessarily need to have the actors wearing masks. Now, there are going to be smaller shows, but you, but you can still do them. Yeah. There, there, there are ways around this, um, but they're going to require creativity, which I think is exciting because I think that's our job as people working in artistic professions yeah. is to be creative. I think a lot of the people that you're seeing complain about, you know, well, film is dying because what about movies like, you know, Tenet and it's not the same. I, I respect that. I have huge sympathy for everybody whose, you know, profession is directly affected by COVID. I mean, mine has basically been shut down. From, say, Christopher Nolan's standpoint, he still has the ability to make films if he wants to. Yeah. He would just have to go about it in a different way. And I think that's what the moment is requiring. But I happen to think that's optimistic. I think that's um, kind of proving to like, these different mentalities. It's great that you bring up you know, somebody like Christopher Nolan, who, what there's the him versus, the, he had the debate with Soderbergh where, because Soderbergh shoots digitally, and, he literally shoots on iPhones, yeah. Yeah, and um, Nolan was saying, what will it take, or I forgot the phrase, but he's talking, complaining about Soderbergh doing that and saying, like, to bring you back to film. And Soderbergh said, well, do you type on a typewriter? And that's, you know, this idea of that, you know, we, it is progression and it is, you know, advancement. And we have to, and for arts, there's that thing about you look forward and you, go for that and those are the people that really come out of it and some great works can maintain while yes you can wish that you're always shooting on 
35 millimeter and our 70 millimeter and it's in uh, this huge theater and blah, 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 blah. But that's just not the case. Well, I, I think, again, it comes down to this idea. There is a privilege involved in yeah. that. You know, like, granted, I saw The Hateful Eight on 35mm like everybody else. It was glorious to watch in 35mm. Uh, excuse me, 65mm. Or I forget what it was. I'm blanking. I'm a uh, terrible film person. 70? Yes. Uh, yeah. so, I, so I saw it. I did see it, and it was wonderful. But is the idea to sort of fetishize the way in which you produce your art, or is the idea to hopefully create art that has an impact on as many people as possible? Yeah. Because I can tell you right now, requiring that your film is shown on IMAX theaters, even pre-COVID, automatically limits the number of theaters that can show it, which automatically limits the number of people who can see it. Yeah. And the tickets are more, too, and you're... Right, right. And the tickets are more, too. Like, going back to this production of Godspell that's happening in Massachusetts, it's $100 a ticket. Like, that's a huge ask, even pre-COVID. $100 is a huge ask for anybody. Um, I have issues working as a theater artist in Michigan, you know, with theaters that charge $43, $45, $48 a ticket. Yeah. And so you're basically creating this system where you're producing privileged art for people who have the privilege to be able to watch it. Yeah. Uh, I, what, you know. Yeah. No, I, um, that actually gets into a topic that I think about a lot, and I have not had the opportunity to mention it, so no, thank you for allowing me to. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, um, you know, as we're diversifying, which is amazing, I think there's always this conversation that pops up. You know, there'll be an article, they'll mention it, and then it'll disappear, and we'll just kind of forget about it or whatever for a couple of years. Is that on top of diversity, there's also that acknowledgement of, you know, for example, in Los Angeles, they say the ones that really make it forward are, it's not necessarily those that are talented, it's those that have the means to keep going. Like, and, yep. you know, where there's the, you know, not putting stereotypes on it, but the people that where their parents are willing to pay some of their rent, where, mm-hmm. you know, Los Angeles people are spending over a thousand dollars for a little bedroom, if that. Yeah. So then, you know, you have these other people that may have an extreme amount of talent, but just can't financially afford it without working constantly. and. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, um, I, I mean, I can take right now. Um, um, I, I, I will shout his name out right now because I think he's spectacular. Um, John Stevens. Uh, he is a, a kid I met at the Purple Rose. Okay. He was an apprentice there. Um, black actor, writer. He's in California right now, uh, getting his master's acting program, degree at the University of Southern California. Okay. Wow. But he's there on a full-ride scholarship, without which he would not be able to afford to go. Yeah. You know, because otherwise, he's a kid from the, the Twin Cities who couldn't afford it on his own, couldn't afford it with his mom. Yeah. You know, it, it would just be impossible. So, to me, anything... I think anything that we, especially as, you know, people who are a little more established... Um, can do to remove those barriers, I think, on all levels. I think um, in terms of increasing access to art so that more people can see it, 
I think in terms of increasing access to programs so that more people can be a part of them. I think in terms of increasing access to schooling, in terms of increasing access to internships and apprenticeships, and making sure that people are, of course, you know, treated fairly and yeah. compensated fairly. But increasing access. I am all about increasing access for the arts because I think an art that is for the privileged and an art that is for the people who can afford it is ultimately an art that says nothing to the larger community and it's an art that's going to kill itself. I mean, yeah. I love opera as much as the next person, but opera's in bad shape right now. <laughs> yeah. No, I, um, there, I, I'm going to botch the, I'm paraphrasing the quote and I don't even have the person, but I know there is, uh, but there's this quote that in order for anything to be considered art, it needs to be accessible by kind of all classes. Mm -hmm. And so that's what, you know, for, I guess, going back to the, the film portion of it, yeah. can it really be considered art until you have, you know, somebody in a low income home that's able to do it themselves and make it and, you know, really bring into the world the same way where, you know, you have painters who, you can have incredibly wealthy or, you know, people painting at you know, any economic level. Well, and see, and I think part of that as well is this removal of the idea that it's like what we were talking about earlier, the removal of this, the, the fruitfulness yeah. involving art, you know, and this idea that uh, now I'm going to quote Ratatouille, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> not everyone can be a great artist, but a great artist can come from any place. Yes. Yeah. And great work can come from anywhere and can come in many different forms. I mean, you and I both love David Lynch. Yeah. Uh, I think you and I have both watched many times his rant about watching movies on iPhones. Yeah. Um, I feel where he's coming from. But how many of us nowadays have watched at least an episode of something on the internet on an iPhone? Yeah. Or an iPad or a similar device? Well... It, it's funny you say that because a lot of the reasoning behind these interviews, what started it, is because of, um, you know, I'd go and watch, or I even got a chance to do Q&A stuff with David Lynch, and there's other people too, but, you know, they give this idea where it's like, oh, just go, oh, out, don't give, don't give in at all, just make your idea, and then it'll work, per, you know, it'll work. But you just got to, mm -hmm. you know, and I get the sentiment behind it of you just need to go out and make it. Yeah. But there is that kind of, you know, well, you're speaking as somebody who you were doing it when, you know, the experimental aspect when nobody really was at the time. You, you're now, you know, you're David Lynch. You can, yeah, go out and do whatever you want and showtime or whatever is going to pick it up. So how do you really explain that to somebody that's just starting out in modern world? And, you know, and you know, what is that like for anybody else that isn't, doesn't already have that name? You know, when I did the, the, the grad school portion that we've talked about on this, yes, yes, yes. Um, we had this guy come in to pitch and, or to teach us about pitching screenplays and whatever. And I, yeah, I won't give his name or anything like that, but one of the things he said, and this was a guy that considered himself a very strong liberal and so on, and he said, well, you're going to have to, the best thing you can do, and it might hurt your pride a little bit, but you should ask your parents if they could help pay for your rent for, you know, at least a year. And I remember thinking, you know, at least even for myself, there's no way. In Wait, I can ask. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's not like it's gonna do anything because my parents can't afford to pay my rent for a year you know and this is a guy that talked about you know sailing the world and all that and it's just and this is you know somebody that considers himself one with the people and one you know and the and so it's just you know it's that crazy was this adam sandler He's, he's like a he's a television writer. That's all. Oh <laughs> yeah. Lord. Okay. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, well, part of this you have to recognize is that people are old, yeah. and once people get old, they don't necessarily want to learn things or accept that there are different ways of doing things. No, I mean that is what I think is interesting about say uh, Soderbergh versus Christopher Nolan, because you're talking about two people who are relatively close in age. Yeah. But one person has shown a much greater willingness to explore what he can do as an artist and what he's, you know, trying to say using literally any material that he has at his disposal. Um, I think that to me is ultimately an artist I can, I can understand a little bit better. Yeah. You know? No, I agree. Um, I can e- even if I don't necessarily appreciate all of their art, I can at least appreciate their mindset much more than someone who prioritizes the perfection of the work, yeah, or the perfection of the process. And I think to deny that one of the main problems across art on all levels is the fact that there is a financial barrier that keeps so many interesting voices and perspectives and ideas out. I think without addressing that, I think you're not only doing a disservice to those artists, but you're doing a disservice to those art forms. Yeah. You know, it's, it's elitism. It's, I, I have no patience for elitism. I have no use for it. And I'm not even asking necessarily for, look, what I love, what I absolutely love to be making a, a living wage working solely as an actor. Yes. Am I trying to work towards that? Yes. In the meantime, am I, you know, working full time at a hospital and doing theater at night? Yes, because I care about doing theater and I do what I need to do in order to do what I love and also put a roof over my head. You know. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So I guess that's you know kind of get on a more easier topic to discuss. Um, So since this is a podcast where we focus on a lot of the, you know, horror movies and obscure and so on. And I know you're, have been greatly inspired and you're a big fan of the horror genre and the macabre. And we even talked about, you know, within this episode, you wrote writing a play about, you know, uh, somebody, piecing together body parts and I don't want to give away the play because I'm hoping one day you oh yes you know write the full version and then can really promote it but yes and get more people to walk out <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so that is kind of like why is was that so inspiring to you the macabre and the horror and the and then after that kind of what we always ask for a film or something that you champion like that may be obscure and you wish more people had their eyes on. Oh, sure. Um, for me, I love horror for many different reasons, just on a purely fun level. And this was something I learned when uh, doing a production of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, I mean, you know, of course, satire as well. But I was reminded of it doing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because you'd be 
sort of shocked and surprised how relatively few people consider doing horror in theater. Yeah. But do you know how much fun it is to scare people with theater? Oh my god, it's the best. It's the absolute best. Um, there was a scene in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde um, that involved a character breaking another character's neck. And we did it live on stage through a sort of sound effect sleight of hand. Okay. And I broke them behind my back. And the first time that we did that for a preview audience, literally, you could see someone jump out of their seat. Oh, wow. And everybody else in the audience went, oh. And then one person um, in the audience yelled out, oh, my God, I knew it. <laughs> like, that's, that's just fun. That's just I think people don't realize that with um, horror theater, it is accomplishable. I think there's always this mentality, you need to have the the camera tricks, or you need to have the description through prose or something that um, you can't get, but there are a lot of amazing kind of horror plays that yeah, often go overlooked, I think. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it's 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 not well because I mean one of the standard but honestly one of the truest things about horror you cannot create any image you cannot create any sound that's going to be more terrifying than what someone can come up with in their head. Yes, you can't do it. But what you can do just through the power of suggestion in combination with what you've already primed the audience to be thinking about a you can do so many great things. I guarantee we were able to like scare so many people on that show just through things like a paint stick or the first time I came in as Mr. Hyde just from the sound of me whistling from the back of the from the back of the house. Yeah. Where everyone knew who was coming but no one could see me. Like that in and of itself was just so much fun. Yeah. Past that um, as, as we did, I think, on several occasions with satire, I love horror as a means of exploring basically societal issues. Yeah. Exploring the trickier aspects of what it means to be a human being. I mean, look at something like Get Out, yeah. which is about racism and appropriation. Or look at something like, you know, uh, Alien. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we're talking about like this idea of sexual horror and the body being taken over and this idea of you know who do you know among you is actually who they say that they are who can you trust what happens in a situation like that these yeah. are you know these are all human sociological things that we deal with yeah and horror i think is a great creative outlet for that on many different levels and and plus it's just I think it also, in terms of a creative standpoint, allows more freedom. Yeah. You know, because it's it's sort of considered like a no man's land, like, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, well, if it's a drama, it has to be like this, and it has to follow this structure. Or if it's a comedy, you've got to have this particular joke land at this particular time, or you have to have this happen here, or have this happen here. Whereas horror feels no need to play necessarily by any kind of those rules. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. No, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, what, what do you what do you think? What What would you say? No, I I loving everything you're saying. I, you know, I it's interesting to see what I think comes 
from it now. And it's funny you mentioned Alien because with everything that's going on in the world, I keep seeing all of these memes pop up, you know, showing the crew, the Alien crew, and it'll say something about, you know, they should have listened or look what happened. They should have just listened to the, the, you know, these two people. And it talks about, um, what's his name in the, is it Parker? Parker and then Ripley. Oh, yep, 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 yep. Like if they, mm-hmm. if the crew just listened to them, then and followed quarantine and you know then none of it would happen but so it's interesting you know i think yeah a lot comes from it and a lot you can that's why i personally love it is you were able to say a lot and i've always been a big horror fan in my whole life and yeah and that's because i think it kind of it also releases that that fear that people have or that was it the you can do it in a safe environment you know the world is scary enough as it is but if you can i can release some of that you know anxiety and fear that i walk around with every day in a you know enclosed environment that's either in a theater or in my own home or wherever i'm watching it so that that's a beautiful thing in my mind <laughs> yeah oh absolutely 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 um so in terms of horror movies um i think it's like there's so many that everybody loves and recommend like all of the standards like the alien like you know nightmare on elm street like psycho like you know um okay so the, the first one which i i think i think i left you to see um but I happen to love it, uh, and it was an influence on The Exorcist, is Onibaba. Okay. Which is, uh, it's, uh, from 1963, 64, yeah. 1963 or 4, um, by a filmmaker called Kaneto Shindo. Okay. It's a Japanese movie. Basically, it takes place in feudal Japan. It's about two women who trap soldiers who get lost uh in a field and basically murder them for their weapons to survive and for you know their equipment and a man that they run into and a mask and it starts off it starts off as sort of more of like an everyday horror of existence horror and then gradually gets freakier and freakier as it goes yeah i love it for that i love it for its cinematography which i think is so beautiful let's see another one oh ha 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 Ganja and Hess. Yes, I just, yeah. We did and a we, um, diversity and horror. We've been doing a little bit of that lately, too. And I um, part of the picks, I, yeah, Ganja and Hess was one of my picks. But I'd, right? yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And kind of. it's, it's another one of those movies, that, like, when I say it's very much of its time, does that make sense? Yeah. You know? Like, it's, it's, it's very much of its time and of its place because it's coming from the standpoint of black empowerment. Yeah. Like, yeah, we can do this. Like, we can do this and we can do this just as well. Like, we have all these ideas. Like, you know, traditionally vampires are seen as something that's, you know, quote-unquote European. But we can take something that's, you know, European or something that's white and we can do our own things with it. And we can make it a metaphor for different things. Yeah. And we can still we we can use we can use an art form and we can use a 
cultural horror that's sort of considered European or white, and we cannot necessarily assimilate into it, but we can do our own thing. We can create our own way. Yeah. Well, and, um, yeah. And it has, um, you know, it's one of the few instances where you have, you know, uh, even a general, a man of color who is... Yeah, he's highly educated. He's, you know, it's not like he's playing, uh, especially that came out in the 70s during all those exploitation films or black exploitation. You have this man that I I can't remember. He's a, he's a, um, Uh, architect, is he? Or is he a, uh, he's an anthropologist. Yes, anthropologist. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. And then, but there's still even that discussion about, you know, if a crime happens in this, incredibly white neighborhood that he's in they're still going to come to him despite the fact that he's you know highly successful intelligent you know and so on well it's i mean it's it's you know like it's the ending of night of the living dead all over again (laughs) which he's also the for those of you that don't know dwayne jones is the protagonist the main one in night of the living dead as well Uh uh um and actually well, have you guys talked about Carnival of Souls? Because that's another one. It, basically, if you've got like weirdo black and white horror movie, I love it. Okay. <laughs> have you have you have you guys talked about that one? We have not. Not on the show. No. Okay. Well, Carnival of Souls is another one I happen to love. Um. Well, again, the going back to this idea of you know democratization and we can do it for ourselves. It's an independent horror movie. It basically about a woman who plunges off of a bridge into a river, somehow manages to escape, uh, becomes a church organist in Utah, but she keeps getting haunted, and she can't figure out why. And she keeps getting drawn to this, basically a carnival, but she can't figure out why. And so the movie sort of becomes, why is she being haunted after this crash? And, you know, who ultimately are, are these ghouls that are stalking her? But just because I'm curious. Okay, so literally, it cost $33,000 to make. Mm-hmm. It was shot basically guerrilla filmmaking style by an industrial filmmaker. Yeah. You know, so it is very much a do-it-yourself, ragtag, seat-of-your-pants kind of movie. Yeah. And yet, for that, the imagery and the ideas and the just eeriness of that movie. Yeah. You know, it's it's more effective than... Oh, I don't know. Like, name any of the, the, the sort of modern trend in movies where you've got jump scares left and right. And, you know, and I, I love that kind of horror. Yeah. I okay. You know, I, I love horror that sort of sits in your soul, if that makes sense. No, it does, exactly. Um, and then... Oh, I don't know. I'll always throw in a plug for Guillermo del Toro, okay. uh, particularly his Spanish language work. Check it out. Yeah. It's brilliant. Um, well, Kronos. Have you guys talked about Kronos? Because that's another one. Um, we talked a little, we briefly mentioned it when we were doing a segment on um, if Pan's Labyrinth, Crimson Peak, and Shape of Water could be considered horror movies, in a sense. I don't know. But we briefly talked on it, but we haven't given a full kind of discussion discussion is more we just you know mentioned it um well i would i would absolutely recommend that one if anyone hasn't seen it yet um i mean chronos is a horror like chronos is it's literally it's another vampire film yeah and it and it is a horror movie but again it's dealing with you know it's a metaphor for addiction it's this metaphor for staying alive but at what price it's this metaphor for you know 
the influence that modernization and industrialization um, and, you know, westernization has had on Mexico and Mexico City. You know, this idea of the industrialist and the business person as a vampire in and of themselves. Yeah. And also, I just really... The relationship between the central character and his granddaughter. Like, I... Because you've seen it, right? Yeah. Okay, so the first time he shows back up after everything on the doorstep, and she gives him a towel, I legitimately cried. Guillermo del Toro is, like, insanely good at moments like that. Yeah. Uh, So I... Okay, then, yeah, I could keep going on. Yeah. But, yeah, I I recommend those. I recommend all of those. um, Check those out. Okay. No, definitely will, yeah. For anybody that hasn't seen them, I would you know, add my stamp of approval as well. Now, um, I guess the last little bit is, you know, of course, the, the self-promotion element. Um, so where people can find you online. I know you're talking about the podcast that you'll be a part of. Um, you know, anything like that, where if you have a website, where, where can people find what you're going to be doing next? Don't find me. I don't want to be found. Uh, no. Um, like I said, blacken, B-L-A-Q-N, dot org. Um, if you look at the website, you'll see a lot of Ashley and my anti-racist work. Um, if you search Blacken on Facebook, you'll find links to all of the podcasts that we have done um, to this point, including other interviews that we have done um, on other podcasts discussing anti-racism in Michigan theater. Otherwise, you could, I mean, I guess you can find me at Michigan Medicine, where I work, <laughs> in operating rooms in recovery. I'm terrible at this. I'm oh, so no terrible. Well, well, you know this, Craig. I mean, my least favorite thing is a picture of my face. Yeah. <laughs> Which we will be showing for, no! for, the, for the episode. <laughs> yes. So... Yeah, I, I would I would check those out. Check out check out blacken dot org b l a q n dot org. And yeah, um, any anything or any support that you'd like to send to Ashley and I uh, in our grand and glorious quest to help Michigan theater be less racist and more inclusive and equitable, yeah, we'd we'd love to hear it. We'd love to see it. Oh, and I agree. And you know, even moving forward, and I'd say if surrounding areas or whatever not even from michigan to search you out just to see kind of where your guys's thought process is going and some of the kind of ideas that you you have oh yeah yeah definitely um get get in touch with us you know we'd, we'd love to hear from people we'd love to compare notes ideas share all of it excellent so thank you so much for joining me dan and it was you know, a nice kind of trip down memory lane, but also very, it was just a great conversation to have on all these topics. Just, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, and again, this was awesome. And we we need to do satire again or something. <laughs> well, maybe we'll see in the, after all this stuff is, passes through, hopefully. Bloodhound Picks Podcast is produced by Josh Lee, Craig Dram, and Kyle Hintz. Music by Raymond Seed. Audio editing by Kyle Hintz.